Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Thank you for joining us. Whether it's the first time or your, I don't know, your thousandth time, maybe you're watching in person or online. Uh, it's great to be with you. We're thankful that you chose to worship with us as part of your Sunday today. Before we dive into uh, week seven of Judges, I just wanted to kind of have a little family discussion and kind of give you guys a heads up on some things that are coming at the end of the year. The end of the year is always crazy, right? Because we go through, we're trying to get everything figured out. We've been talking to you guys about the events like S'more Thanksgiving and Christmas at the warehouse and New Year's Eve worship and all of that stuff. Um, And we're going to have signups coming to register to be like to help serve at Christmas at the warehouse. And so in all of that, We also talk about a couple other things, and so I want to just take a minute and give you guys a heads up on some things that are coming for the rest of the year. I want to talk to you about partnership, first of all, and I want to talk to you about budget and just give you guys an understanding of kind of where we're going. Um, One of the things that we did last year is we kind of did this thing that we called our partnership commitment, and so it was a voluntary thing. If you're a partner at GFC, we just said, would you be willing to say, yes, we're committed to these things? And one of the things, if you're at a at GFC for any amount of time, and I start talking about partnership, here's the analogy you will, let, you will hear me use, right? I am a member at Costco. I'm not a member at Costco because I believe in their mission. I'm a member at Costco because they sell meat I like to put on my smoker, right? So when we talk about membership in church, I don't like to use that word because I think you can be a member and be a very passive person when you're a member of something. But when we talk about partnership, we're talking about being partners in ministry, And so what that means is we've come together as not just a church body, but like a group of people, a movement of people that say we're working together, we're partnering together to fulfill the mission we believe Jesus has for us. That's very different than just saying I'm here transactionally to get something and then I leave, right? That's my interaction with Costco because I'm a member. That's not my interaction with my church, right? And so we said what we want to do for a couple of reasons is we would like to move partnership to just a yearly commitment. We're just going to say every year you get, we just evaluate and we go, are we still in? And we say, yep. Or we say no. And we fill out the commit. We just sign the commitment form and we move forward with that. And so every year, now you might say, why are we doing that? Well, first of all, it is just kind of to remember that accountability we have to our church family to be a partner in ministry and not just a passive member. So there's that reminder there too. But there's also just the fact that with the way things have been over the last couple of years, sometimes it's hard to know who's in and who's out. Sometimes people are away or people are sick or people are doing different things and people have either moved on or they're somewhere and we just don't know and they're coming back. And so we've had conversations like that. And so we're just saying, hey, it just helps us at the end of every year, beginning of every year, it just helps us go, okay, as we're moving forward, how are we going to do this? It also helps us be a little more intentional as we communicate to you guys. One of the things we're planning is an all-partner dinner in January to say, where are we going this year and how do we expect to get there and how can you be a part of it? And so there's just a a lot of cool pieces to that, that we think this is going to help us as we move forward. If you're hearing this and there's any bit of like angst or worry, it's not that. It's not supposed to be that. This is not to define who gets to go to our church. It's not to define who's saved and who's not. It's just saying who's a partner in ministry, who is wanting to take that step. And I've had conversations with people. We say, do you want to become a partner? And they say, no, we're not ready for that yet. And I say, okay, great. And we just kind of move on. And we would love for them to take that step eventually. But it doesn't mean that they're not welcome to be a part of our church family. Um, So here's how this is playing out. We're going to move to this situation, this idea, this one-year commitment. 
And you can do this today if you're a partner. We have these partnership commitment forms uh, that are out at the welcome desk. And so you can grab one. You can use one. If you're a couple, you can just use one, sign your names on there. You can, they're out there. You could, if you're ready to do it, you can look over it. If you saw this last year or you became a partner this year, you, are, you already saw this. Um, and so if you want, you can grab it, sign it, leave it at the welcome desk, and you're done. If you're more of a person that would like to spend a little more time, you can take it home, you can look over it, make sure you're good, and you can bring it back. If you would like to do it digitally, we're going to email you this week, and it's going to hit your, and you, it hit your inbox, and you can just fill it out online. Um, and the other side of this conversation is, if you are not a partner with us already, we would welcome you to do that. The plan is to get new partners, if you're interested in that, connected uh, early January. And so if that's you, if you're saying, I'm not a partner and I want to be, you just take the next step card uh, in like the physical one or do it on your phone and just fill in the spot that says, I want to become a partner. And we'll get back to you and we'll be able to set that up for you coming here uh, in early January. So two more things real quick and then we'll get into into judges. Here's the second thing I want you to know. The budget is going to be available for partners December 4th. So we'll have that available. You'll get the opportunity to kind of look that over, process that. We'll have the information you need. Um, and then we will, that will be, the vote will happen for that. It'll be due back the 18th of December. In all of this, with budget, with partnership, if you have any questions, please feel free to come to myself, come to Pastor Andrew, come to some of the elders. But we are going to have just a little like town hall meeting after the service on the 11th. Just so if anybody has any questions, they can hang out and ask questions. We'll just be available for you. There's not going to be any vote that happens there, but it'll just be a time to kind of go through questions and discuss those things and kind of figure it out. The due date for the budget vote, which will go out through email like we've done it the last couple of years, um, and the due date for the partnership commitment are both December 18th. So the, the goal is to get the budget and partnership all set for 2023 before we even step into 2023 and have it done and ready to go, okay? So just a quick recap in case you're confused. And if I confused you, just come tell me afterwards and just say, you confused me. Can you help me? And I will help you. But partners, we would love for you to fill out our commitment form if that's something that you are wanting to do. We have them at the welcome desk. You can do that today, or you can wait for the email, or you can take it home and read it over and have about a month to do it. Um, And then just the budget will be available on the 4th. We'll have the town hall to just kind of have any questions answered on December 11th, and then both of them are due on December 18th. All right? Information meeting done. You can come ask me if you have any questions. Let's dive into Judges Week 7. So... We've been traveling through Judges for the last, yeah, six weeks. Now this is week seven. We have one more week left, okay? So we're going to finish up Judges, and then we're going to step into the Christmas series. So those of you who are like, let's get to Christmas, let's get to Christmas. we got to wait like two more weeks, okay? And then we'll get there, all right? I don't know if we're having, Dan, are we having Christmas carols next week yet? Or are you going to wait? Another, we're going to wait? Okay, good. I know Dan, like, he doesn't want to, you know, get there too quick, but we'll, we'll make sure we get it, right? So we'll get there in a couple weeks. But Judges, we're going to be in ver- uh, chapters 17 and 18, one of the things you're going to realize is we could spend a lot more time in Judges, okay? There's, a lot of, there's some stories that we didn't even get to. There's pieces of stories that we just couldn't go over. Today, we're going to run through things pretty quickly. We're going to look at these two chapters, but we're only going to look at a very few verses that are in there. So I would encourage you at some point in your quiet time or just when you have some time, go back and read through especially the sections we didn't get to and just kind of fill in some of the gaps for yourself. But here's where we got to, right? Pastor Andrew preached last week. He talked about Samson. Samson was actually the last judge. So the, the last few chapters of Judges, there's no more judges. They're done. 
And so this is kind of the aftermath of all of that stuff that we just talked about and moving forward and kind of understanding what's the state of the nation of Israel as they've moved out of the judges and move forward in the timeline. So we're going to start Judges 17 in verses 1 and 2. It says, There was a man named Micah who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. Well, I have the money, and I was the one who took it. Now let's like pause for a minute. We get no context for this, but we get introduced to a man named Micah who stole money from his mom. His mom calls down a curse on that person. He overhears it and goes, wait, mom, don't curse me. I took the money. Okay? Weird story. Why is it? I don't know. We don't get much more than that. Going on in verses 2 and 3. The Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her, and, he sa- and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord. In honor of my son, I will have an image carved and an idol cast. Verse 4. So when he returned the money to his mother, he took 200 silver, silver coins and gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol. And those, these were placed at Micah's house. Verse 5. Micah set up a shrine for the idol, and he made a sacred ephod and some household idols. And he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. So we get five verses into this chapter, and here's the question that just came to my mind as I was studying this. Does anyone see the problem or problems here? You get five verses in, and there's a bunch of issues. This is a bit, and, and, and forget the whole fact that he's a thief, right? We can set that aside, and then there's a whole new set of issues, right, that we run into. And so I want to I talk through kind of the issues we see and, and why, they, why they are such a problem. Because sometimes in Scripture, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, I've experienced this, you see someone in Scripture do something, and you go, that doesn't seem that bad, or their intentions were good, or I don't really understand why that's that big of an issue. And I want to kind of flesh these out and see why this was such a problem, especially at this time, for Micah and his mother and his family to engage in. So here's the first problem, right? They made an idol. So Exodus 20, verse 4, that's in the Ten Commandments, right? Don't make any idol. So the weird thing is, right, she takes the money back, and she says, I'm going to dedicate this money to God, but then she hands it over and has an idol made. Not, that, that doesn't connect super well, right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. So that, that's the first mistake, or the first problem, is that they, they make an idol. Number two is they dedic- she dedicated only part of the money. So even though she used it in the wrong way, she says, I'm going to dedicate all of this 1,100 pieces of silver, right? And then how much did she spend on the idol? 200. So what happened to the other 900, right? So maybe she used that 900 the right way. We're not sure. But she says one thing and then does another and didn't even use it the right way. You, you can kind of start to see how this is just kind of a mess, right? There's just kind of thing after thing after thing, and they're just not, it's not all connecting. Here's the third thing. Micah creates his own place of worship. We've talked about this idea, the word, the word ephod is there, right? We've talked about that a little bit in Judges. This was a priestly residence. This was like where they were, this represented the space where they were to worship. And so when he does this, he creates all of these idols. He sets up a place for him to worship at his own property, which was not necessarily, it's different. It's hard to understand thinking about necessarily today and then, but they were supposed to understand God's presence in the temple, not create another spot for God to be. And so he creates a space in his own home to worship. And then number four, this is the last thing, 
Micah establishes his own son as priest. And we have no information that his, he was from the tribe of Levi, which is where all the priests came from. And so he takes his own son and just says, you do the job that I need somebody to do in my own place of worship. And in all four of these problems, here's how I would kind of wrap it up and put a bow on it. Micah's worship is completely focused on convenience for him and not reverence for God. So in all of it, he's saying, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to worship. This is the place I want to worship. This is the person I want to lead me into that worship. And this is how I'm going to do it. These are the things I want to worship. This is how I'm going to, I, I don't want to be inconvenienced by what God has said or what he has encouraged me to do. This is just what I'm going to do. And so he's not looking at God and saying, yes, I will follow you. He's looking at God and saying, this is how I'm going to do the thing you've asked me to do. And so out of convenience, he builds up all these things. So why, why were these things so wrong? Why were they such a big deal, especially when you put them all together? So going back through and just thinking about it, making an idol, why, why would making an idol be such a big deal? Their goal was simply to create something that they could worship that would represent God, right? Well, when we focus on one facet of God, we can ignore others and therefore not worship him completely. And so God understood this, and I'm, I'll help illustrate it in just a minute, but he understood like if they were just going to make an image of God and worship it, they weren't worshiping God. And it would only give them one understanding, maybe, of God. Here's, let me give you this example, right? Maybe um, most pictures or paintings that we see of Jesus are pretty similar, right? He's usually fairly pale complexion, which uh, not true, right? He's usually wearing white, which is kind of silly because he lived at a, very, a time that was very dirty. So he probably wouldn't have been so white. He's kind of glowing, and his hands are kind of like this, right? That's kind of what you see. And so what's that representing? Well, it might be representing just Jesus's presence now in heaven. And so there's some inconsistencies there, but maybe it's, maybe it's a good one. But what about a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross? And so when you think about those two ideas, you go, okay, well, I might be worshiping and thinking about Jesus as he's present in heaven, but that doesn't necessarily represent Jesus hanging on the cross. He deserves to be worshiped in both facets. And yet if we pick one, we miss it. Here's another one, right? Maybe you've seen a picture of Jesus as a baby. Well, that's a completely different understanding, right? But we don't worship Jesus as a baby anymore. And so when we see these pictures of Jesus, they all represent different facets of who he is and why we worship him. We worship him because he's holy and has the ability to be present with God. We worship him because he died and sacrificed himself for us. We worship him because he came as a man and could understand what we went through. And so in all of those facets, that's only three, but there's way more, right? And we're not even talking about God the Father at the moment. When you look at one facet and you say, this is how I'm going to understand God, we miss the rest of the picture. And so God says, don't just focus on one thing. Don't create an idol and just think of me as one dimensional person because I'm not. And there's so much more to understand. So when you focus on that one thing, we don't understand who God is. And that's why all the way back in Exodus, right, he says, don't make an image. An image you make cannot represent me. And so he keeps them from doing that. But this is what they fall into, and we've seen the Israelites do this with idols over and over and over again. Number two, they dedicated only part of the money. And I would say this, that keeping a safety net for ourselves is not a true step of faith. So she takes, she says, I'm going to de dedicate all the money. Here's 200, but I'm going to keep the other 900. And the question we can wrestle through here is like, are we giving all we have to God? I'm not talking about just like opening your bank account, but I'm talking about your life, right? Like, are we keeping 
part of it and just saying, this is what I give to God and this is not what I give to God, right? I, I give God Sunday morning, but don't ask me about Friday night. I give God this section of my income, but not this section. Or I give Jesus this section of my time, but not this time, right? Is it, is it all his or are we kind of keeping that safety net and saying, if God doesn't come through, I want to make sure I'm still okay. And we're not talking about being unwise. We're just talking about, do I trust him? Am I purposefully following him and giving him everything that I have to give? And the last one, or the last two problems, three and four that we talked about, I put together. And I just said this, worship on my terms and at my convenience is not worship at all. When we start to define how we're willing to show reverence to somebody, how we're willing to worship the God of the universe, when we're putting parameters on that, we're not really worshiping him. And think about what that means. Like, let's just think about worship for a minute, right? The reason we worship God is because we believe that he is the creator and the sustainer of all that we see. He's the reason we have breath in our lungs. He's the person that came to and offered his life for us. You put all of that together and we go, we believe that we are these small little specks in the universe and he's the one holding it all together. He has the power to create it all. He keeps time and all the stuff going. Like he, He's infinitely more than we could ever understand. And yet at times we go, but I won't worship him in his terms. That's what Mike is doing. He says, I, I believe, I, I, want, I want to worship God, but I, I want to do it the way that I want to worship. But when we understand who God is and why we worship, that doesn't make any sense. And so how does this play out for us? Well, this, this next verse, we didn't get to verse 6 yet, but coming to verse 6, this is actually the verse. If you look up a theme verse for Judges, this is it. And this is what we're seeing play out in these first five verses with Micah. Here's, here's verse 6. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. It's, it's hard to get there sometimes because you look at all the things God did for Israel. right? All the judges we saw, every time they got in trouble, they cried out and God says, here you go, I'll save you. Here you go, I'll save you. And yet they still get to this point where they go, I'd rather have idols. I'd rather worship on my terms. I'm going to keep doing whatever it is that I want to do. So they say whatever seemed right in their eyes is what they did. And this is the struggle. This is what I think we can get stuck in as well, is that ignoring who God is for a version of him we would rather create is very real in our culture and in Christianity. So at times, if you've heard, if you've heard me do these, you know, I have conversations and stuff. You, I don't like to take culture and church and just go, those are the people out there, and we're in here, and we're better, and they're not. I don't, I don't play that game. This issue is very real and a problem in both culture outside of church and in the church world, where we would at times rather, and we, we would ignore God for who he is and actually create a version that sits better with us. In culture, there's a lot of people that are willing to have spiritual conversations. You can talk about God. You can talk about like, how they understand spirituality. You can have a conversation about how they believe the world came to exist. And there's all kinds of things. And if, if you're just talking generally and you're just like, you know, I believe this and they believe that, and you're just kind of generally sharing ideas, it's all fine and good until you start to have the conversation and go, no, this is actually what's true, and this is who God is, and this is the only way to get to him, and this is the only way to understand him, and this is the way we are to worship him. You start going there, and then people start to get frustrated. Because they don't like to be told, well, their ideas aren't right. And we, we feel that way too. 
But you can have that conversation in culture until you start to define things. And I think the same exact thing can be true in Christianity and in the church. Let me give you three examples of phrases and ideas that I've heard personally from people uh, having conversations with me, having emails with me, and how they understand God. Okay, so here's the first one. I don't want to worship a God who dot, dot, dot. So someone might say, I don't want to worship a God who allows children to starve in third world countries, right? I don't want to worship a God who allows school shootings to happen. And they look at that and they go, my terms on what God is allowing to happen define whether I will worship him or not. Now, again, let's take a step back and go, what did we just establish about whether we, about why we worship God? Because he's the sustainer, he's the creator, he understands things that I don't. And God's not happy with those things. But at the same time, when I step back and go, God's not worthy of my worship because of something bad that happens because of sin in people's lives. It's a, it's a misconception. It's a problem. There's a rub there. So I get these feelings, but we withhold from God because we don't understand. Our minds are not the litmus test on whether we get this or not. So I don't want to worship God, I worship God who? Here's another one. If God wants me to be happy, he won't care if. So if God wants me to be happy, he won't care if I identify as someone that I'm not. If God wants me to be happy, he won't ask me to do X, Y, Z thing, right? And all of a sudden now in this phrase, our happiness becomes the center of whether we will worship God or not. So if God doesn't allow me to be happy in this moment, or God doesn't give me what I want, then I'm not going to worship him. Again, who's the center of that conversation? We are. Here's the third one. I prayed about it, and I feel like God is okay if we dot, dot, dot. You ever, you ever use prayer as like an in or out for something? Like, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably done it. Like, if somebody came up to you and was like, you know, I really think it'd be great if you serve in this way or you do this and you say, let me pray about it, right? There might be some true intention there, but there also might be a little bit of like, I'm kind of going to maybe give God the opportunity to be the reason I don't do this. There's also that on the reverse. And so we pray about something and we go, I don't feel anything wrong with this. So we might say, I prayed about it and I feel like God's okay if we move in together before we're married. I feel like God's okay if, if I do this, even though it goes against his word. What I feel right now is that it's okay, and so I think that's God giving me the okay. Listen, in all these conversations, here's what happening. what's happening. We don't like it when God moves us in a space we don't want to be in. Or God gives us parameters that we don't want to be there. And yet, we're still called to worship him through those situations. We don't like the fence that's kind of put around us. But here's what I know, right? Anybody in the room ever been skydiving? Has anyone ever gone skydiving? No? Oh, one? Oh, you've done it? Okay, cool. I've never done it. I, I might one day, but I'm kind of waiting for my children to get older so I don't feel bad if, like, something bad really happened or something. So, like, waiting for that. But here's what I know about skydiving, right? If I signed up for skydiving and I walked into the room and they sat me down in a classroom and they said, this is all the things you need to know about skydiving, I would be listening very intently, Right? They wouldn't get halfway through the class, and I raise my hand and go, you know what, I think I'm going to do it differently. I think I have a better idea about this. 
I think that we should, you know, rethink that. We should do it, right? I'm going to listen to everything they say. And if I don't understand something, I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to double check. Okay, you're sure. Like, this is the way I put the backpack on. I, I put a backpack on every day. I still think I'd ask them if I'm putting on the backpack right, right? Like, there's things like that where you're like, I want to make sure that the person who knows what they're doing and how they're doing it is doing it correctly, and I'm going to trust them. Listen, the same is true when we look at God. He's the one who's the expert. And yet we get to these spaces, we go, yep, you're the expert, yep, I believe you, yep, I'm going to worship you, and then something comes up that doesn't agree with how we feel. And we go, you know what, I'm not sure anymore. I'm not sure I want to be listening to that. It doesn't make a lot of sense when we think about it that way. And here's what happens when we lean into these ideas and we become the center of what we worship and how we worship and why we worship. Here's what happens. Our version of God will never be more than a genie granting our wishes. This is why it's so hard, and I struggle with this too. Immediately when I start to pray, what comes to my mind? The things that I want God to do for me. And in some ways, that's not bad, because I'm recognizing, and you're recognizing, that we don't have the power to control the things we're asking him to help us with, and there could be really good things we're asking him to help us with. But at the same time, if we show up with just a list, it's not very worshipful. And so we think about this and we go, if, if God always just jives with exactly what I want or you want or what my desires are or what my feelings are, then God is simply the genie. And I want his favor and I want his influence and I want his power to work for me, but I don't want him to change me or sanctify me. This is where we get to. This is the problem that we have. And I, like I said, it's true outside the church, and in the church. Those, are all, those three phrases I gave you were all from people who were followers of Jesus at different times, and that was the conversation that we had. It's difficult because we're putting ourselves in the middle of it. But here's what true worship looks like, right? True worship of the living, almighty God is difficult, frustrating, and gives complete freedom all at the same time. Listen, worshiping God can be very frustrating sometimes. Because we go through days where singing he's a good, good father doesn't feel right in here. Because we're mad at him. We're frustrated. The, the week was difficult. He did something we didn't like or he allowed something to happen that we didn't like. And we're supposed to turn around and say, yep, I'm just going to sing. Or I'm just going to pray or I'm just going to be present. It's, it's difficult to worship God. It's not easy. Because everything inside us says, I want to worship me. It's difficult. It's not easy. But here's what it does, right? It gives complete freedom. Why? Because when I'm not the center of the attention anymore, I'm not the person who gets to define anymore, I'm not the person who everything rises and falls on anymore, I get to hand it over to him. And it doesn't make sense sometimes. But we can still say, it's okay if it doesn't make sense. I'm going to hand it over to him. And when we really do that, it means we're going to worship him because we're not the ones holding the cards anymore. I want to move forward now and judge, to Judges 18, but I got to give you a little bit of the story, okay? So remember, Micah has set up the place of worship at his house. He set up his son as priest. And this is where, this is kind of how he's living at the moment. Well, he does get a Levite priest that actually comes along. So the Levite priest shows up, and he, I don't know, maybe his son, we don't get any indication on what his son was doing or not doing, but Micah basically says to the Levite priest, why don't you stay and be my priest? I'll house you, I'll pay you, you'll be great. 
So he goes, okay. The Levite priest, he stays and does what Micah asks. Well, we get introduced then a little bit to the tribe of Dan. And the tribe of Dan had a place that they were living. They were kind of up in these caverns and stuff. They didn't like that. So they decided they wanted to come down and find a new place to live. And on their way to finding a new place to live, they come across Micah's house. And so this is where we're going to pick up the story in Judges 18, starting in verse 18. It says, When the priest saw the men carrying all the sacred objects out of Micah's shrine, he said, What are you doing? So the tribe of Dan shows up, and they start to take all the stuff out of the shrine. They take all the things that Micah has set up. Verse 19, Be quiet and come with us, they said. Be a father and priest of all of us. Isn't it better to be a priest for an entire tribe and clan of Israel? Than the household of just one man. So they go, hey, we got a promotion for you. Why don't you just stop arguing with us and you come with us and you get to get a, you get a promotion, right? You get to be in charge of more people, bigger church kind of. He says, okay, great. So the young priest in verses 20 and 21, the young priest was quite happy to go with them. So he took along the sacred ephod, the household idols, the carvings, carved images. They turned and started on their way again, placing their children, livestock, and possessions in front of them. Verse 22, when the people from the tribe of Dan were quite a distance from Micah's house, the people who lived near Micah came chasing after them. Verse 23, they were shouting as they caught up with them. The men of Dan turned, turned around and said, Micah, what's the matter? Why have you called these men together and chased after us like this? Verse 24, what do you mean, what's the matter? Micah replied, you've taken away all the gods I have made and my priest, and I have nothing left. Remember that verse. It's a very important verse. Let's read it one more time, right? He says, what do you mean? They go, what's the matter? He says, what, what do you mean what's the matter, right? You've taken away all the gods I have made and my priest, and I have nothing left. Verse 25. It says, the men of Dan said, watch what you say. <laughs> there are some short-tempered men around here who might get angry and kill you and your family. Verse 26. So the men of Dan continued on their way. When Micah saw there were too many of them for him to attack. He turned around and went home. So what Micah said there is very telling, right? He goes, you've taken all the gods I have created. All the things that I thought were worth it. All the things that I worshiped. All the things. What was the, I, the gods I have created? Think about that sentence. What I have allowed to rule my life, you've taken from me. And you've taken my priest. And then he says, I have nothing left. Listen, here's what happens. Your created version and my created version of God rises and falls on our circumstances. Like when we define God in our own terms, that's all well and good until someone comes along and takes all your idols. Until someone comes along and rocks a bow. Until, until someone, something happens and life gets all shook up. And when you, what the gods that we create, when everything's going the way we want and we kind of go down that path, when all of that ends, guess what? Somebody takes it away or life takes it away or the circumstances change and we end up in a space where the God we created is gone. And the thing that we decided we wanted to worship more than the God we should have reverence for is gone and we're left with nothing. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, all that's left is ourselves. When we come to the end of ourselves with God, who's left? God. And so when we create this version of who we're worshiping and something changes, we get, we get ourselves in trouble. It says again, right? Remember verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, 
and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Listen, this, sometimes these verses are hard for us to grasp because, again, I've said it over and over again. We don't just take idols and worship them, like physical idols. We know that that's silly. But we will place other things in life and worship them. And we will define God by our own standards and worship him on our own terms at times. And when we get there, we're missing who God is. We're not giving him the reverence he deserves. And we're placing ourselves at the center of our worship and not him. So here's what ends up happening in those moments. We often trade the infinite God for our finite God because he is easier to control. Our version of God is never going to ask us to do something difficult because it's uncomfortable for us. Our version of God is never going to tell us to give up something we don't want to give up because we don't want to. Our version of God is never going to challenge our morality because then we'd have to change. But when we turn our lives over to the infinite, almighty creator and sustainer of the world, there's a lot there that's going to have to shift in my understanding of who he is and how I worship him. Because I don't get it. I don't understand him. But that's part of the freedom of worshiping someone other than me. And so here's the question I want us to ask and kind of think through this week. Are you worshiping your version of God or the true infinite and almighty God? Have there been moments in life recently where you've had one of those sentences where you would go, I'll worship God if, or if God was good, or if God wanted me to be happy, like, and we've kind of defined that. Have those ideas snuck into our thinking recently? And if they have, what are they? Are there situations that we look at and we just go, I, I just don't think God would do that. Or I don't think that works, but is it true of Scripture? Do we know that that's the way God works? Or do we know that God doesn't want us to do this? Or do we know that God wants us to be this instead of that, right? I don't know what that looks like in your own thought life. But we have to get to the point where we look at God and we go, no matter what you're doing, I'm in. Even when it's difficult, even when my feelings and my desires are different than what Scripture says or who I know the person of God to be, I have to be in on that. Because when we get to the end, right, what did Micah say? You've taken the gods I've created, and I have nothing left. If that's what our faith boils down to, you're going to get to a point in life where you've got nothing left. Because the idols we create won't last. But when we worship the almighty, infinite God, our worship will last forever. So how do we understand God? How do we worship God? Don't be the person who God would look at and say, and all the people did what was seemed right. Don't be the person that God would look at and go, and Corey just did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. Because the implication of that verse is that God kind of just, remember, he didn't give them any more judges. And there was a little bit of this, you know what? You guys have done this over and over and over again. I'm just going to let you go. That's a terrifying place to be. You don't want to be in a spot where God just kind of goes, you know what? You go ahead. You do what you want to do and see where that goes. Right? 
We want to be in the place where we pursue God. Not that we're perfect, not that we always do it right, but we are pursuing God to look like Jesus and to say, I want to worship even through those difficult days. I hope that we as a body of believers, as a church, we challenge each other in that too. And we can lovingly, if someone says to us, I don't want to worship a God who, or if God wants me to be happy, that we can look at one another, we can go, wait a minute. Who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping you and what you want? Or are you worshiping the almighty, infinite sustainer and creator of the universe? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would make it abundantly clear in our minds the way that we may or may not be putting our own parameters on worshiping you. That we would not put ourselves at the center of worship, but that we would put you at the center of our worship. And I ask that that verse 6 from chapter 17 would never be true of us. That we would never simply do what was right in our own eyes, but that we would do what was right in your eyes. And that that would define how we understand and worship you. And even when those difficult days come where it's frustrating to worship and it's hard, that we would find the freedom that comes when we turn ourselves over to you. I pray that we would never come to the end of our rope and just go, I've got nothing left. But that we would come to the end of a difficult experience and look at you and say, I have everything I need because I have Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.